Let's look at the first three verses as we begin, and then we'll look at all nine verses. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get to all nine verses tonight. The Bible says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses, and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is holpen shall fall down, and they all shall fail together. Title of the Bible study tonight is this, Great and Mighty is the Lord. Great and Mighty is the Lord. We're warned here about not going down into Egypt for our help. And uh, some of tonight is going to be repetitive as far as the concepts of last week. But if you're like me, if you are like me, then um, I've got to be told multiple times before it gets through my thick skull. Amen? And so I hope that tonight it will help get it through a little bit deeper Help us understand a little bit better. Let's pray. Lord, we, are, we praise you that you are great and mighty. Intellectually, everyone in here knows that. But Lord, sometimes in our day-to-day, in our practical living, we forget. We forget to involve you when life gets tough. We forget to turn to you uh, even in the mundane things of life. And Lord, uh, we begin to trust ourselves. We begin to trust others. And uh, as Isaiah reminds us in this chapter, we need to trust you and not trust worldly structures and worldly things. And so help us, Lord, as we're reminded of these things tonight to not only comprehend them with our head, but, Lord, to uh, fully grasp them and work to implement them in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we get deeper into Isaiah, we are approaching a point uh, in the book where the character Hezekiah is going to be introduced to us. And Isaiah lived through uh, the reign of several Judean kings, and Hezekiah would be the one that Isaiah was the closest to. And very soon, uh, in, the, in the next handful of chapters, you'll begin to see the name of Hezekiah come up more and more. And some of this prophecy has to do with Hezekiah and his reign. But uh, what's going on here is that uh, Judah is in rebellion against God, and uh, Judah politically is looking to make alliances with other countries to help them as the Assyrians are pressing down on them and uh, trying to attack them. In fact, Assyria, in short order, uh, at the writing of Isaiah 31, is going to carry away the ten northern tribes of Israel, Israel, its own separate country from Judah at this point, going to carry them away. Assyria is going to march into the country of Judah and terrorize and overtake and make it all the way to the wall of Jerusalem before God will step in and stop the Assyrian army in one swoop night. He'll come down in one swoop in one night. And he, as we've seen in the last couple of Bible studies, he would destroy them. Now, this is written prior to that. And uh, Judah is looking at making alliances. They're looking at making friends with uh, people who are not God, people who are godless. They're looking to turn to the world to get them by. And Isaiah 31 uh, is a couple of things. Number one, it points to 
the, the country where it is, and it warns them against an alliance with Egypt. And then at the end of the chapter, it reminds them that one day there's going to be a day where the Lord God will deliver them from all their foes and uh, they'll reign uh, supreme with the Lord. Let's jump into the outline tonight because we have a lot to unpack here and I think I've given you a pretty good idea of what the chapter is about. Let's jump in here and look at uh, verse number 1 in detail. Number 1, notice Judah's warning. Judah's warning. Look at verse number 1 with me again. Woe to them that go down to Egypt. Now, that word woe is a, hey, uh, pay attention to what you're doing. You're making a big mistake. Warning, warning, warning. What you're doing is wrong. Warning, change directions. Warning, let's go another way. We're not doing this appropriately. We're not doing this correctly. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and uh, stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Let's look at uh, two thoughts here in verse 1. Number, uh, notice letter A, Judah is uh, being warned to avoid false trusts. Avoid false trusts. Look back at verse number 1. Woe to them that go down to Egypt. They go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and, uh, and, and in horsemen because they are very strong. Uh, what's going on here is that they're trusting in the wrong source when they get in trouble. Now, I don't know what it is about Judah. In fact, I guess I do a little bit. But I, I look at the nation of Israel all throughout its history from the time they were wandering around the desert up until even this point at, at near the end where uh, they're just a few years from Babylonian captivity. And they seem to have the same struggle. And that was that they had a bend toward going back to Egypt, back to Egypt. Now, God had saved them from captivity in Egypt, and here they are, thousands of years later, established as their own country for a long time. In fact, uh, uh, Egypt's been wiped out and restored a couple of times, and uh, they've had David sit on the throne, and all kinds of other kings sit on the throne, and they've sat on top of the world, but here they are with a bend back toward Egypt again. They want to go down to Egypt uh, as, uh, as they should not be doing. They want to go back down to Egypt, the land that once held them in captivity. There's a bend to put their trust in that. And I look at uh, my life, and I'll tell you what I see. I see a desire in me to want to go back to sinful habits when things get tough. There's a bend to go back to sinful habits to cope when I'm struggling. I, 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 uh, I face a hard time and I want to turn back to being an angry person to cope with the toughness, uh, the, the tough situation. I want to go back to my pride. I want to go back to lust. And uh, listen, there is this bend to go back to the captivity of sin to cope with uh, those hardships in our life. I see this in Christians on a regular basis. They go through a hardship and instead of running to the Lord to carry them through that hardship, they run back to their sinful behavior prior to being saved in the world and they're trusting a, a false trust. They, they have their trust put in the wrong place. They have their trust put on something that's going to do them no good. Now, why do people do this? And, and why does this happen? And, and I've given that a lot of thought. I really haven't. I don't know that I have a solid answer, but I believe this 
wholeheartedly. I believe that people turn to what it is that they are familiar, to, to which they are familiar. And even if what's familiar isn't good, what's familiar is comfortable. It's comfortable, right? And so think of someone who's grown up in an abusive home. Oftentimes they turn around and get into an abusive marriage. Why? Because that's what they know. And what they know is more comfortable than what they don't know, even if what they don't know is better for them. Now, I see this in my own life where... I have this victorious Christian life that I could live where I could cut free of sinful behaviors and I could learn to cope with turning to God in my hard time or I could uh, learn to cope by turning to sin. And you know what I end up doing oftentimes is I end up turning and coping in sin instead of coping in the Lord and having freedom in Christ. Why? Because my trust is misplaced. Turn over to Psalm chapter number 20. Psalm chapter number 20, and look at verse number 7. Uh, Woe to those that go down to Egypt. Now, you and I don't go to uh, uh, Egypt today, if you will, but we can go back to the world. We can go back to sin. We can go back to what we're familiar with and end up falling into those same traps. Isaiah, uh, rather, Psalm chapter 20, look at verse number 7. The psalmist here wrote, David, he said, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Well, look what he says here. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We will remember the name of the Lord our God. Here Judah is turning to Egypt and buying horses and buying chariots and bringing them, importing them into their country to help them when the Assyrians attack. Why? Because they have strong horses and they have a, 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 a powerful and well-equipped and, and top-end chariots. And, and David said, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And here, what is Isaiah warning Judah? What is Judah's warning? He is saying first, avoid false trust. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says what? Trust in the Lord. Say it with me, with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. You know, there is what seems sensical to man, but oftentimes is nonsensical to God. You understand that? You sit down and say, well, this makes sense to me. And God says, maybe to you, but I know more than you do. I'm infinite, you're not. And that is nonsensical to me. Don't trust in your own understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding. Can I just say what all of us, are, are, uh, what all of us can struggle with? All of us struggle with this. We lean on our own life experiences. Did you know God does not want you to lean on your life experiences in hard times? Well, I've been down this road before, and I know how this turns out. That is a sinful thing to say. What you ought to say is, I bathe this thing in prayer, and this is the direction that God is leading me in. Uh, listen, did you know that I've been down the same path twice and had uh, with, with a similar situation and ended up in two completely different places? Because God does not want me to lean on my understanding. God wants me to lean on Him. Amen? Amen? Avoid false trust. Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't put your trust in in, in others. Don't put your trust in worldly systems. Uh, I was talking to uh, someone earlier today, and they were talking about how an amputee 
can get an itch and a nerve that no longer even exists. And there's this tendency to want to reach down and scratch. You say you got an amputee who's lost from the elbow down, and all of a sudden his brain's telling him that his forearm on his right, his right forearm itches. There's not even a right forearm on his body. And there's this desire to go and scratch an itch that doesn't exist. And listen, when God saved you, he cut you off from Egypt. He cuts you off from sin, and He doesn't want you going back and scratching that itch. Avoid false trust. What was Judah's warning from Isaiah? Uh, avoid false trust. Let her be. Don't forsake God. Don't forsake God. Look back at verse number 1 of Isaiah 31. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel Neither seek the Lord. They forsake God. They, they don't want to turn to God. Why? Uh, because they're living in sin. And when you're living in sin, the last thing you want to do is turn to God to get you through a hard time. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 8. Let's look at a couple of other verses about this idea of the danger of forsaking God. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and look at verse number Eight with me. The Bible says, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Uh, here, God is telling uh, Samuel, he's saying that, listen, don't take this personal. This isn't about you, Samuel. They're not rejecting you, Samuel, prophet, leader. They're rejecting me by asking for a king. And listen, they're forsaking me as being the supreme authority in their life. And they want a man to be put in my place. And they have forsaken me. Why do they turn to Egypt? Uh, in, in Isaiah 31, why were they tempted to turn to Egypt for their alliance? Listen, here's a, here's a solid point I want you to remember. When you are forsaking God, you'll turn to man. But when you are forsaking the counsel of man, you have no choice but to turn to God. You with me tonight? You understand me tonight? If the first inclination you have when you hit a hardship is to call a parent or a pastor or a friend, Christian or not, or to run to some therapist or psychologist, and your first inclination is not to turn to God and bathe that thing in deep, deep, deep prayer, then my friend, you have forsaken God to turn to man. And God wants you first to turn to Him. Don't, don't turn to uh, uh, Egypt and worldly systems while you are neglecting the God of heaven. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 15 and verse number 2. Second Chronicles, that's in the Old Testament. Don't get that confused with Corinthians in the New Testament. Second Chronicles 15, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, and look at verse number 2 with me. It says here, And he went out to meet Asa, and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you, but if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. He will forsake you. And listen, we get the same idea in the New Testament. Where Jesus said that if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before the Father, right? God does not want us to forsake him. He wants us to 
embrace him. And here Judah is in a place at this point, uh, when Isaiah is writing this, uh, they're in a place where they have turned their back on God and they've looked back to that place of captivity from their past and they're trusting in Egypt, world, world, the worldly systems of Egypt to get them through a hard time. And God says, avoid false trust and don't forsake your God. Turn to your God when the going gets tough. Number one, we see Judah's warning. Number two, we see the Lord's wisdom. The Lord's wisdom. Look at verse number two, Isaiah 31. And look at verse number two. It says, yet, speaking of the Holy One of Israel, yet he also is wise, wise, there's that wisdom, yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. I see this verse broken up into two sections, both talking about the wisdom of the Lord. The first half of verse two talks about the Lord's character, his character. Uh, how do we know that the Lord is a God? Uh, God is a God of wisdom. Well, uh, listen, he qualifies his wisdom by having a character that is strong. He has a character that is impeccable. He has a character that is perfect. Look back at verse two. Look at the, the first half of the verse. It says, yet he also is wise. All right. There's the declaration. He's wise. Now qualify that statement, Isaiah, and will bring evil and will not call back his word. When God gives his word, he keeps it. When God says he's going to do something, he comes through on it. I've had people say, well, I'm just not so sure uh, if um, the Lord's going to keep his promise. And I just want to pause you right there. If God gives his promise, you can write it down. You can take it to the bank. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises every single time because he changes not. Uh, uh, Titus tells us that God cannot lie. He cannot lie. And if God has given you a promise, he will follow through on it because his character is impeccable. Look at Psalm 111 and look at verse number 7 with me. Psalm 111 Verse 7, 111 and verse number 7. The Bible says, I'll begin reading. The works of his hand are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. Now let me draw out a point here that many of us don't. Uh, this is the, the opposite side of the, the character coin, I'll call it. All right. We all like the positive promises of God. We all like it to think, oh, God keeps his promises when it comes to, you know, his goodness toward me. But did you know that when God promises to punish evildoers, that he keeps those promises too? Did you know that when God promises to punish sin, he keeps those promises too? Right? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. How, have you ever done something wrong and thought, oh, a week or two goes by? I think I got away with that one. You didn't get away with it. When you plant a, a seed in the ground, it doesn't pop up two weeks later or a month later. You know what? There's a planting time and there's a harvesting time, and they're usually months apart. You, you sow the seeds of pride, and I promise you, your life is limited in many ways 
because of your pride. You sow the seeds of covetousness. I promise you, your life is limited and God is punishing you. Your life is, uh, 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 you have a governor on your life, if you will. You cannot push through a glass ceiling and you cannot reach a new height because you have a punishment of God that's holding you back. And I'm going to tell you right now, many Christians will live for decades with the punishment of God on them and not even know that to them that's normal. They don't know what it's like to sail to a new height because they're living with the punishment of God continually on them because of sinful choices that they continue to make over and over and over and over again and they're miserable inside. Why? Because God is a God of character. In His wisdom, He knows exactly how to keep His promise when it comes to uh, both blessing us and punishing us. We see His character. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter number 12. You go back to Isaiah, just a couple of books to the right. Isaiah, uh, uh, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel, look at chapter number 12. I love the way that this is worded. In fact, I read a lot of verses putting this message together uh, about God's character and, uh, and His wisdom and, and how that God uh, punishes evildoers. Look at verse number 25 of Ezekiel chapter 12. And I read this verse and I said, boy, this just fits. Uh, I couldn't uh, have worded it any better myself, Ezekiel, almost like God told you what to write. Look at, look at verse number 25. For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass... It shall be no more prolonged, for in your days, O rebellious house, will I say the word and will perform it, saith the Lord God. What's he saying to Israel here through, uh, through Ezekiel? He's saying, you are a rebellious people. I have said the word. I have spoken. I have laid out what the consequences are. Take it to the bank. I will bring this punishment home. It will Come to pass. Why? Because in God's wisdom, he has a character that's flawless. We see that Judah has been living in a state of rebellion for a long time. When Isaiah pins this, uh, uh, pins the, these words down in Isaiah 31, and he's saying to them, the Lord is wise. The Lord, the Holy One of Israel is wise, and he will keep his word. His character is impeccable, but not only do we see his character in verse 2, letter B, we see his capability, his capability. Go back to verse number 2 with me there. Verse number 2, the Bible says, Yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words. Look at, the, look at the next part of the verse. But will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. He, he will arise against. He will take up the opposition. He will be the opposition to those who are living in sin. And listen, one thing is for sure, you don't want to go mano y mano with God because you will lose every single time. Every single time. I, I watch as some teenagers want to go head to head with mom and dad. And um, I can tell when I've got a mom and dad uh, who's going head to head with a teenager and mom and dad is used to winning. You know what the teenager doesn't do? He doesn't like to go head, and head, head to head with a mom and dad who wins, right? How many of you are that parent who you are the author, or are or were the authoritarian and you ain't, you, is, this is a losing fight, right? 
you're not me versus you, you will lose every single time. And um, other parents are more like roadkill. They just get, you know, run over and, and their leg on the side of the road. Ah, I got lost to my teenager again, right? Uh, listen, God, you're not running God over, right? Uh, it's like running into a brick wall. Now, is there grace? Of course there's grace. Does God give second chances? Yes. You can't push through God's character. You can't push through a promise of punishment and think you're going to get away with it. Micah chapter 5. Turn over to Micah. Uh, Micah is obviously to the right of Isaiah uh, in the Minor Prophets. Micah chapter number 5. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? How many of you vote Habakkuk? Anybody? I had a pastor growing up. He'd always say Habakkuk. And I thought, it's not Habakkuk, it's Habakkuk. And uh, he, only, he wouldn't say it very often, but when he'd say it, I thought, I, I don't think he's getting that right. But uh, we'll get to heaven and find out we're pronouncing all kinds of Old Testament names wrong. Um, uh, look at with me at Micah chapter number 5, and look at verse number 15. And I will execute, uh, the Lord says, I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. The Lord's going to give a whooping to the evildoers on such a level that everyone's going to go, I didn't even know that was possible. I, I didn't know that it could be that fierce. I didn't know that the vengeance of God could come down that hard. We know the Bible teaches that our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a God of wrath. We say to everyone here tonight, be very, very careful listening to any preacher who wants to emphasize the grace of God and does not want to emphasize the chastising, punishing hand of God. God is love, but God is not only love. God is mercy and truth. Mercy and truth. He's a perfect balance. And a lot of the preachers today, they want to preach on the love of God. And I'll preach on the love of God. Amen? I think the love of God needs to be preached on. But to preach on one half of God's character and ignore the other half of God's character is a great injustice to those who listen. We must understand that God is a God of vengeance and anger and indignation and wrath. And God hates sin. God hates evildoers. And God will punish that sin. The Lord is wise, and God has been standing watching Israel and Judah for many hundreds of years. He's sent prophets to warn and prophets to warn, and that those warnings were not empty threats. God is going to come through. Number one, we see Judah's warning. Number two, we see the Lord's wisdom. Number three, we see man's weakness, man's weakness. Look at verse three. Let's read from verse three down through verse five, and then we're going to hone in on three and four for a few minutes here. Notice the weakness of man in comparison to God. Uh, now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is holpen shall fall down. We see the weakness here, and they all shall fail together. For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, look here, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, uh, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself uh, for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts 
come down to fight for Mount Zion, and for the hill thereof as birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending also he will deliver it, and passing over he will preserve it. Uh, Judah, you want to turn to Egypt for help, but when push comes to shove, Egypt's going to fail you, and I'm going to come to your rescue. Why? Because that alliance you are turning to is made of men who, in comparison to me, are weak. And when they let you down, I will come in and save the day. Letter A, let's look at the word comparison. Comparison. Look back at verse 3 and 4, and we get a comparison between the Egyptian strength and the Lord's strength. And then we're going to make some applications to me and you uh, after this. Look at verse 3. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses flesh, and not spirit. See the comparison here. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is hoping shall fall down, and they all shall fall together, for thus hath the Lord spoken unto me. Like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he, the lion, will not be afraid of their voice, uh, nor abase himself with the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. And so here God is being compared. Isaiah the prophet is comparing the Jehovah God, Almighty Elohim God, to Egypt. And he's saying, listen, you're turning to men, and these men are mere mortals, they're not God. And their horses are horses. They're not spirit. And he's saying, now imagine you have a, a you have lions. You have uh, uh, large lions and you have young lions and they have surrounded sheep. And they're going to go in and, and get their lunch. And then you have shepherds that show up and use their voice to try to deter the sheep. He said, listen, uh, those lions will win every time. The lion is the lion of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not intimidated by an Assyrian army. They're like sheep to him. And here you are turning to men who will fail you when Almighty God is not weak. He is strong. We serve a God who is strong. Uh, turn over to Job chapter 38. Job 38. And here really is the thrust of the Bible study tonight. All right, uh, In Job 38, we're going to see that in comparison to God, uh, we are not strong. We are weak. Turn over to Job 38. And let's look at, let's look at the sheer physical strength of man versus the physical strength of of God. Job comes right before the book of Psalm. Job 38. Now, if you know the backstory of Job, um, he and his friends have been sitting around and they've been criticizing Job for quite some time. And them, they themselves are being self-righteous in their criticism of Job. And Job has begun to defend himself. And God comes down and has a little powwow, if you will, with Job and begins to show Job, hey, Job, you're not as... Uh, I think maybe you've lost perspective. Let me compare you with me, and let's see what you think at the end of this. And, and, and this goes on for chapters, okay? Well, let's look just at the very beginning of it. Look at what God says to Job about who he is and who Job is as a man. And let's see the comparison between man's strength and God's strength. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? 
Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. God says to Job here, all right, Job, you think you're a tough guy? Uh, uh, Listen, uh, pull your pants up, be a man, and let's have a conversation, and I want you to answer me some questions. Look at verse 4. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Where, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the seas with doors when it broke forth as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and thick darkness a a, swall, a, a a swaddling band for it and break up for it my decreed place uh, and set bars and doors. He goes on like this for chapter, uh, verse after verse, chapter after chapter. Joe, where were you when I was using my voice and creating everything out of nothing? And you know what Job at the end says? He says, God, I concede you are everything and I am nothing. I am nothing. What was God saying to Job? God was saying to Job, listen, in comparison to me, I am great and mighty and you are not. And you know what? We want to turn to the strength of a man to help us through a situation. And the reality is we have a God who is uh, omnipotent, he is all powerful in every way, and we should not be turning to the weakness of man when we have the Almighty God. But not only in physical strength, notice that in comparison to God, he is morally superior. Turn over to Romans chapter 3 and verse number 4. Romans 3 and verse 4. Uh, really, the terms here uh, to use to describe God and man are the words infinite and Finite. God is infinite, meaning He is unlimited in every way, and man is limited in every way possible. Man is limited in how moral he can be. Man is limited in how strong he can be. God is infinite in His strength, and God is infinite in His ability to be perfectly moral. Look at Romans chapter 3, and look at verse number 4. God forbid... Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. If we're going to look at mankind, and then we're going to look at God, God is morally perfect, and mankind is morally flawed, deeply flawed, deeply flawed. So that brings me to an obvious question. Why... Would you first turn to a man or woman who is flawed and sinful before you would turn to God who is flawless and sinless? Why would you turn to a man when God says that every man is a liar and God is true? Boy, I don't want to turn to man. I want to turn to the Lord. Now again, to keep things in in proper perspective, to keep things biblical... God does give us spiritual leaders on earth. God does give us counselors. We are to bear one another's burdens. We're to confess our faults one to another. And a multitude of counselors, there is safety. But you be careful about turning to a man without turning to God. It ought to be that God is the first one you go to. 
and that you simply use your brothers and sisters in the Lord to help hone in what the Lord and the Spirit of God is already leading within you. Why? Because man is weak. And when we compare uh, Egypt to the Lord, uh, the Lord wins every time. When we compare man to God, God is great and mighty, and man is weak and frail. We see that in a comparison of strength and morality, God is superior. But how about in love? John chapter 3 and verse 16 is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible for many, many reasons. In fact, it's been said about that verse that all of the verses leading up to it point to it, and all of the verses after it point back at it. It is the theme verse of the Bible. Say it with me. Ready? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, uh, it, it, it's something we all know deep down. We don't even have to really think about it. We've known it. Many of us have known it for uh, most of our life, if not our entire lifetime, uh, from uh, a, a young child age up. But let, let me, let's just stop and take one thought out of that verse and let it blow you away. If, if it has before, let it blow you away again. Okay, think about this. For God so loved the world. How many people right now are on planet Earth? 7.98, I looked up the worldometer like two weeks ago. And then it was 7.98 billion people living on planet Earth. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you, okay? I probably know somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 5,000 people. Did you know that of those three to 5,000 people, I don't genuinely love even half of them? Because I can't, I don't have the capacity to pour myself into that many people. Did you know that of those three to 5,000 people that I know, I'm familiar with, they're familiar with me, some of them, even if I wanted to love them, I would find it very hard to love them. How many are you with me tonight? How many have a short list of people that even if you tried your best, it'd be difficult to love them, amen? How many is that person you're sitting next to right now, amen? Okay, hopefully not, Amen. Hopefully that person's not standing on the platform right now, all right? Um, God so loved the world. You know what that means? That means every person alive today, God deeply loves. Wow. I am so limited in my ability to love the handful of people that are, exist in my presence right now. And God doesn't just love the people that exist in my presence. God doesn't love the people that are in my inner circle alone. God loves everyone in every circle. And God not only loves everyone in every circle alive today, God loves those who lived a generation ago and two generations ago all the way back to Adam. For God so loved the world. When I compare His physical strength to my physical strength, boy, I a pale in comparison. When I compare His morality to my morality, boy, I fall well short. When I compare His love to my love, I fall way short. Let me give you one more. Isaiah chapter 55. Turn over there. Isaiah 55 and look at verse 
number seven. And, and, and as we go through the book, we'll make it to this passage and, and, and we'll draw out uh, a deeper truths and, and more accurate application or rather interpretation at that time. But let me give you an application out of this passage. Look at Isaiah 55 and look at verse number seven and then we'll read eight and nine as well. These are familiar verses, but I want you to see here uh, how that God is able to forgive on a whole nother plane than you and I are able to forgive. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. And look at the promise here. Talking about God keeping his promises. And he will have mercy upon him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I made the statement in church a handful of weeks ago that God would save even a pedophile. And i got to tell you, I would have a hard time forgiving a pedophile. I'm just being very honest right now. Pedophiles, I get, I get upset when I think about all that goes on with pedophilia. I get deeply disturbed when I think about that. And, and if that happened to one of my children, I, it would take a lifetime if I ever was able to totally and truly ever forgive that person. There are limitations on how much you and I can forgive. But the Bible says here in Isaiah 55 that God is infinite in His ability to forgive. And you step back and go, how is that possible? Then look at verse 8. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow, uh, uh, rather, uh, I skip verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Listen, I can't forgive the way the Lord can forgive, because I am finite in my ability to forgive. He is infinite in His ability to do so. What's the point I'm trying to drive home here? Is that in comparison to the Lord, why would you ever put your trust, why would you ever misplace your trust in man when it first and foremost belongs in the Lord? Why? Because the Lord is great and mighty and you and I are weak and frail. Let's look at a few more verses here as we consider this comparison. Look at Psalm 118 and verse 9. Turn over to Psalm 118. And verse 9. We're going to move quickly through these. If you've got fast fingers and you can keep up, I encourage if not, then just hang tight and listen. Psalm 118 verse 9 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Amen? How many of you learned that the hard way in life? You put confidence in people and they let you down, and you know that God never lets you down. Amen? It is better to put confidence in the Lord. Why? Because there is no comparison. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. Isaiah, Jeremiah, just one book to the right of where we're at. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse number 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm. And whose heart departeth from the Lord. Now, what is the biblical worldview? I am not going to turn to some counselor or therapist to get me through a tough time. I'm not even going to turn and solely trust a doctor to get me through a medical hard time. No, I'm going to first put my trust in the Lord and then allow man to lead me in the path of righteousness of the Lord. I'm going to pick people who line up with the Word of God. Cursed be the man that trusts in 
command. Jeremiah 17, verse 5 says, Also look with me at 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 4. Let's get a New Testament passage in here. 1 John chapter 4, and there's a, the, the Gospel of John, and then toward the end of the New Testament, you find 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and then 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, the Bible says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who is in the world? Well, I believe that's speaking of the devil, but I can tell you who else is in the world. Me and you are in the world. And in comparison to, uh, in comparison to God, everything in the world falls well short. Uh, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. Does that mean we don't love the people of the world? No, we're to love the people of the world. We're not to love the systems of the world. Why? Because when you go putting your trust in money, and you go putting your trust in worldly systems, and you're not trusting in the Lord, your confidence rests in something that is weak. Woe to them that go down to Egypt. Why? Because they're weak. Out of verse 3 through 5, we see the word comparison, but notice letter B, we see the word commitment. Commitment. Look down at verse number 5. Look at verse number 5. As bir- And we see the commitment of the Lord to Israel here. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. He's committed to defend Jerusalem. Defending also, um, uh, he will deliver it and passing over, he will preserve it. Now, I don't think that there's some unfulfilled prophecy here. I believe what this is talking about is directly to do with the Assyrians and the Assyrians coming in and attacking. And uh, Listen, they've made their way to the walls of Judah, uh, the Bible tells us. And Sennacherib stands outside and mocks uh, Israel and Hezekiah falls on his face before the Lord. Again, we'll rehash some of this. And God comes down and He swoops in like birds flying in and He saves the day. Why? Because verse 5 tells us uh, two things. It says he's committed to defend and he's committed to preserve. He's committed to defend and he's committed to uh, uh, preserve. Let's look at one more thought tonight. Number four, we see the Lord's will. We've seen Judah's warning, the Lord's wisdom, man's weakness. Number four, let's see here the Lord's will. What is it that God wants from me and you? Well, verses 6 through 9 lays out for us the Lord's will of our behavior. Look at verse 6. Turn ye, uh, turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. Let me go ahead and give you letter A here. Notice the word repentance. Repentance. Look back at verse 6 and let's read verse 6 and 7. Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. In the day that... Um, Assyria was outside of the walls of, of, of Jerusalem, attempting to take it over and breathing threatenings with that large army of theirs right on the outside. The people of Israel were inside trembling. In fact, Hezekiah would go into the presence of the Lord and the temple would throw himself down in and, 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 and great fear and trembling, begging God to help them. And you know what happened when push came to shove? They threw away their idols and they worshiped the Lord. It's been said that there are no atheists in a foxhole. You know what? You find the Lord, don't you, real quick. You can say you don't believe in the Lord, but when your life is about to be snuffed out by the enemy, all of a sudden you find the Lord. And you know what? Uh, Christians who are idolatrous, worshiping those 
material things, those tangible things they can get their hands on, boy, when trouble sometimes comes and God is trying to purge us, boy, real quick, we learn what God wants. He wants us to repent. He wants us to turn. He wants us to change our mindset on who is in charge. What is the Lord's will? The Lord's will is repentance. Let her be notice the Lord's will is rest. It's rest. Look at verses 8 and 9. There, it says, Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited, and he shall pass over to his stronghold forever, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign uh, or of the sign, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. We looked at the passage a couple of weeks ago, but the Lord laid out a hundred and something thousand plus soldiers with the, the, the death angel of the Lord went through and slew all of these soldiers in one night. God swooped in and saved the day. And you know what he did? When Israel repented, they found rest. When they repented, they found rest. Uh, You know, the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard. It's difficult. How many of you have lived life long enough that you've lived in some transgression and realized that the way of the transgressor is hard? How many of you know I'm talking about tonight? Isn't it great that when you repent from that sin and you get it right with the Lord, and you begin to walk that right path, does that mean all your problems in life go away? No. But you know what it does mean? You have rest for your soul. That God gives you rest. When Israel, when Jerusalem, repented and turned to the Lord and threw away their idols, God took care of the enemy, and He gave him rest. Now, I gave you James 4, 7 through 10 there as a New Testament application passage. What does James 4 7 through 10 say, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what's the first step uh, in order to get rid of the, 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 the war within you? James 4, 1 begins by talking about uh, the, the, the lust and the war and, and wanting to have and having not. How do you, you the, the adulterer and adulteress and, and the enmity with God. How do we get uh, from a place of unrest with the Lord to rest with the Lord? Well, we submit ourselves to the Lord. This is His will. We resist the devil. The devil flees. Verse 8, draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands. That's the outward, you sinners. And purify your heart, ye double-minded. Verse uh, number 10 of James 4 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. He will lift you up. What happens? The same truth is present in our lives today. We don't have an Assyrian army ready to wipe us out. But you know what we do have? We have unrest from sin from living and rebelling and revolting against God and turning and trusting manly, uh, uh, worldly systems, God says, cut all that out, quit going down to Egypt, turn to me, repent, uh, trust me, I've got this, submit yourselves to me, draw nigh to me, and guess what I'm going to do? Come to me, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Amen? What do we get out of Isaiah 31? Isaiah 31 again is a is a, is a is a passage written to the Jews. It's it's a it's, it's a Jewish passage of scripture. But what do we get 
from this passage, we, we get great application to you and me today. Let's not turn back to the systems that we trusted in before we got saved. Let's put our trust in the God who is great and mighty. Great and mighty is the Lord our God. Great and mighty is He. Amen. Let's stand together tonight. I hope that the Bible study has been an encouragement to you. And I hope that you'll put these things, uh, uh, give these things some thought, meditate on them after uh, you get home and, and uh, ask God to show you where your, your, your faith is mistrust. Let's not uh, have false trust tonight.